0: You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading,
1: dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social-emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve
0: them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be
1: sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get
0: started. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Together in Literacy podcast. Hi, Casey. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to spend some time with all of you today, our listeners, as we're just diving into dyslexia, literacy, and social-emotional connections. We are so appreciative of each one of you and your support for tuning in, and we really love getting your feedback. So today we have a review from Robin327 called My Favorite Podcast. Emily Gibbons and Casey Harrison have hit the nail on the head with this podcast. Every episode is relevant, whether you're the parent of a dyslexic child or an educator. I am both. Their back and forth flow is easy to listen to. And I always come away with an aha moment. Well, Robin327, we so appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. We just love that you find us easy to listen to. (laughs) We try to keep the conversation light, you know, even though we may have some meaty topics, Mm -hmm. you can absolutely leave us a review and we would love to hear from our listeners and you may hear it being read on a future episode. So thank you so much. And Casey
1: is going to get us started right away. All right, everyone. Well, welcome. Our last episode, Emily and I discussed accommodation and creating what we call the toolbox of skills. And strategies so that our students can access the curriculum, level the playing field, and develop their self-advocacy skills. So, if you haven't listened to episode 15, be sure to tune in to that one for those tips. Especially as we move into today's conversation with our very special guest. Um, at the end of episode 15, we told you we were going to have someone joining us that can speak to the legal aspects of dyslexia and special education. And so, we're very excited to have Sabrina Axt joining us today. Uh, Sabrina Axt is a practicing attorney for over 15 years in the Bay Area in California, and her journey, which I'm going to let her tell you, um, has led her to leave a civil litigation practice in order to advocate for her child. Um, And she now exclusively practices special education law and guides her clients through the special education process understanding and advocating for IEPs and accommodations and equips parents um, with the tools that they need to advocate for their children. Um, And just as a quick disclaimer, you know, this is a reminder that all the information provided here on the podcast and with Sabrina is just that information and does not act as a legal advice or an attorney-client relationship. And if you need that, please make sure you consult an attorney regarding your specific case. But we're so excited to have Sabrina here with us. So welcome, Sabrina. Thank you for spending some time with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Hey, Sabrina, we just so appreciate you coming in and to uh, talk with us today. We know that our listeners are a combination of both uh, teachers, tutors, specialists, and families. So Mm -hmm. we know this is just going to be so, so helpful as they navigate, try to understand everything that's going on, whether they're new to special education or seasoned. We know that this really can be almost feel like a a part-time job. So why don't you just start with what was your driving force for transitioning? from civil litigation to special education law. We'd love to hear that story.
2: As as you mentioned, I practiced civil litigation about 13 years. And there were various reasons for me transitioning, but the biggest was my daughter. Um, I actually ended up leaving the law altogether uh, on her last day of kindergarten. And at that time, I had a lot of mom guilt. She just wasn't doing very well in school. And I know everybody says, you can't compare your child to anybody else. But it was one of those situations where everybody else was able to do things that she couldn't. And I started to feel in my mom gut that something wasn't right. And of course, being a busy working parent, I thought it was my fault. It's because I'm not there with her. Uh, it's because I'm not present. I'm not in the classroom, et cetera.
1: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I
2: actually left my job. I was a stay at home mom and I volunteered in her first grade class. I worked with her on homework. You know, I thought I'm going to tutor her, I'm going to get her up to speed. And we threw all these resources at her and we saw minimal improvement. She was really struggling to read and I'm like, something's got to be going on. And at that point, I didn't know anything about dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing research, being an attorney. That's what I do. And I started looking into it and I initially thought, well, maybe it's ADHD. And actually she does have ADHD as well, but that didn't explain all of the, the reading issues. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I, I kept talking to her doctor about it, her pediatrician. And you know, I hear a lot of times pediatricians don't really understand dyslexia either, but this one did and it was really interesting because we started the process looking at ADHD and her doctor was the one that said well wait a minute are attention issues causing problems in school or problems in school causing inattention issues mm. and it stopped and made me think and you know tutors were helping her as well and we noticed she had decoding issues mm. And she's like, that's a red flag for dyslexia. And I thought, oh my gosh, well, now I need to research dyslexia. So the more I sat with her and I watched for patterns that emerged when we were doing classwork together and reading, and I thought, oh my gosh, she has dyslexia. So then, of course, okay, <laughs> that begins the entire special education process. So then that started, um, it was a battle to get her tested. Then we finally got that done. We got the IEP, the teachers didn't even follow the IEP. It was very weak, it, you know, it, it was a problem. Um, so I had to really, you know, start advocating for her. And in the end, uh, we ended up placing her in a private school for uh, dyslexic kids. Mm -hmm. And she is thriving now. She is doing great. And I I can't recommend her school enough. It's absolutely fabulous. So once she got placed there, I thought, well, I don't have to advocate for her anymore because she's where she needs to be and she's getting the services she needs. So I turned my attention to educating other parents in the community and, you know, it's funny because all of a sudden, all of the dyslexic parents came out of the woodwork mm-hmm. and, you know, we've always been very open about our, our journey and everything. And so I began helping uh, friends and family informally in the community. And then I thought, and people said it to me too. They're like, why are you not doing this? Yeah. And so that's really the the long-winded version of me uh, opening my practice. At that point, I transitioned to special education, which is what I do now. I opened my own solo practice and I'm loving every minute of it. Wow.
0: That is a powerful story.
2: Yeah. And most special education uh, attorneys have a connection. They have a family member, loved one with, with some sort of a disability. Mm -hmm. But that's, it's, it really became my passion project. And with my legal background already in place, I was just thinking, gosh, why don't you do this? There's such a need because there's so much misinformation out there. There's so many parents that don't know what they're doing. I mean, even me uh, as an attorney at the time, I didn't know what I was doing. It's like, it's a foreign language, special education. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with dyslexia, not only do you need to educate yourself about dyslexia and there's a lot there, mm-hmm. you also have to educate yourself about special education process. Right. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. there, there's a lot to learn. And you mentioned that it's almost like a, a part-time job. I don't know. I have heard a lot of people say it's a full-time job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. I It can be. Yeah. Absolutely. It Um, really can be. And I mean, having to study up on all the different types of testing out there that, yeah, I mean, it it is there. It's like a whole new language to learn. Yes,
1: it is. And, and I think, you know, I'm really grateful that there are people like you, Sabrina and rights law and, and these other places that are really showing up for advocacy for dyslexia. I think dyslexia continues to be misunderstood by everyone in every facet of of education and in, in parents and doctors and and so just the more we have people out there that are spreading awareness and advocating for our children the better i think that's really you know that power of understanding is is something that that is needed so you know, yeah. I'm glad that, that you're here. So when we're kind of thinking about, you know, some of those big hurdles that parents find in the IEP or the 504 process, what, what are some of the ones that you, you know, maybe just a few that you see that tend to come up often as big hurdles in that process?
2: Well, I think the first one is just with getting the evaluation itself. Um, I mean, I, I was told personally we can't test your daughter until she's two grade levels behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I hear a lot, we can't test for dyslexia. Full stop. We don't test for dyslexia. We can't Mm -hmm. do an evaluation until they're in, you know, second grade or third grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like that. Or, Or sometimes they'll say, oh, well, let's try this other reading program first. Let's try, you know, tutoring or the remedial reading program. Or, well, let's just give her a 504. You know, anything to get out of actually completing the evaluation. I I hear that a lot, unfortunately. And, you know, as we all know, none of those things are true. You can test in kindergarten and get an accurate result. And as we know, the sooner we do the testing and start intervention, the greater the response. So, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of things, a lot of excuses that only serve to delay the process Yes, and that is the worst thing you can do. And while it is true, a, a lot of times I hear, well, let's wait and see. Mm. You know, you see the, the, the reversals, the letter reversals and some of the different things, well, you know, they're just learning to read. Let's wait and see, you know, it's age typical right now. And it's tough because I, I, I tell everybody, yes, that's true. But if your mom gut is telling you that something else is going on, you need to push for an evaluation.
1: Yeah. I'm a big believer in listening to the parent gut, you know, your child, you know, if something's not quite adding up. And then also I think, you know, helping people understand that dyslexia is not just one singular thing. It's this cluster of characteristics that are often maybe misunderstood or maybe not known by the educators in the classroom or the parents. And so Anytime that someone's saying it's just one thing that they're looking at, that's always kind of a, hold on, let's, let's have a conversation about what dyslexia actually is. Whenever I hear those things come up. Yeah, right.
2: Exactly. You know, and it's so funny because a friend, she had her son evaluated and they told her he can't be dyslexic because he's good at math. Hmm. And, and I was so confused. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. There, there's there's all sorts of interesting reasons why parents have a difficult time getting their kids evaluated and then mm-hmm. getting IEP for dyslexia.
0: Well, just to go back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of the early screen, the early ID, just because that will really help with the response, with the output of getting that intervention in place. We have just been hitting that home so many times in past episodes, the importance (laughs) of not, of get, of ending this whole wait and see, wait to fail model and putting in that preventative model instead, and, and really getting that early ID just so, so important for these kids. So let's say you have, you're working with a family that they do want to ask for an evaluation from a school. What tips do you have for them when they are about to enter that process?
2: So one of the things that I see people do a lot is mm. they will reach out to their child's teacher. And they'll go to the teacher and they'll have a verbal conversation and say, I think something's going on here. I think we should test my child for dyslexia. Mm. And then nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for parents to understand that you need to make your request in writing. Yes. Yeah. And you need to send it to the principal and to your child's teacher. And I, I kind of feel like you have to ask it in the right way. You have to use magic words. So mm-hmm. your request needs to be in writing and you need to say, I would like my child evaluated for special education eligibility. I have noticed that my child has trouble decoding words. I have noticed X, Y, and Z. And I am concerned that my child may have dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, ADHD, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. And I would like a full psychoeducational evaluation to test for IEP eligibility. Then mark your calendars. Right. Um, and actually, as part of that, you know, that written request. Um, I would end that request by saying, I look forward to receiving an assessment plan.
0: You really like how you have spelled out so simply how to mm-hmm. word that letter in writing and how you have emphasized the importance of saying it in the written form, not yes. just a verbal request because yeah. that begins that paper trail, right? Yes,
2: yes. and. I don't know who said it, I I won't take credit for it, but a very wise person said, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Right. So that is the number one rule of special education. It must be in writing. You have to create the paper trail. Email is fine, Mm -hmm. but a verbal conversation, I, I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, my child's teacher told me X, Y, and Z, but then they won't say that in the IEP meeting. Right. Well, I'm sorry if it's not in writing; they didn't say that.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So you got to
2: get everything in writing.
0: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So,
1: Sabrina, will you speak a little bit to for those people that don't know? When you said to mark your calendar, <laughs> right? So I think that this is kind of a step that gets not well known. So, so when you say to mark your calendar, what, what is it that you're speaking to?
2: So when you submit your written request for an evaluation, the school, I believe has 15 days to send an assessment plan because parents have to consent to the assessment. Um, And then once you receive that uh, it's the assessment plan is just a list of all of the tests that they're going to do, who's going to do them. And the parent needs to give consent. Okay. Sign that and you send it back to the school. Then mark your calendar again. I think the IDEA says 60 days, but these timelines can vary by state. So make sure you check your state. But in California here, it's 60 days to complete the evaluation and hold the IEP meeting, excluding school holidays in excess of five days. So summer break doesn't count. Winter Great. break doesn't count, but mark your calendars because I see it all the time where schools delay, 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 or what's happening more and more with the teacher shortages is they don't have anybody to do the evaluation.
0: Great.
2: And so I, you know, I've heard that before too. Well, the school told me they can't test my child right now because the school psychologist is on leave or we don't have a resource teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know that's, that's a separate issue. Yes. And, and, that, and that is an ongoing problem. And I, and I certainly sympathize with schools in that regard. The problem is from the legal perspective, the law doesn't say do X, Y, Z as long as you have enough money to do so or as long as you have the personnel to do so. It says you must do this. Right. Right, And, right. and then that So you really to the- need to push. And, you know, if the school doesn't have the right personnel, then you can get somebody from another school to do it. Mm-hmm. They could mm-hmm. hire an independent contractor to come do it. Right. There's lots of other solutions and you need to push for that. Mm-hmm. You can't just take, well, we can't do it right now for an answer.
0: Right. Right. Yes, that is a separate problem. Staffing issues, we're noticing yeah. that coming up more and more, mm-hmm. even with service delivery being an issue and just not having enough people. I don't know whether that's fallout from pandemic or a lot of other factors in mm-hmm. schools, but I think it's going to only increase. <laughs> yeah.
2: Unfortunately, Unfortunately, yes.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. That will have to be another episode, Casey, right?
1: Yeah. It will be.
0: <laughs> but well, yeah, it's a hot you know, topic.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm starting to see this wave of change in schools where they are starting to require that early screening be done in kindergarten and first grade to start to tag the kids earlier and provide those appropriate interventions, which is a great move in the right direction. Um, But we do know that, you know, we still have these IEP meetings and our 504 meetings and for parents, you know, stepping into those meetings, sometimes it can be a little bit intimidating no matter how lovely and kind the school is, there's just a lot of jargon that goes along with it and a lot of steps. And there's a lot of things that are thrown at the parents because those meetings move quickly. So do you have any tips for parents to prepare for those meetings ahead of time so that they feel a little bit more adequate in advocating for their, their child?
2: Yeah, I think parents first of all need to really educate themselves on dyslexia and the type of interventions that are needed for dyslexic kids. Yeah. I think they also really need to educate themselves in special education law. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily require hiring hiring an attorney or, you know, researching the law. There's a lot of really good online resources that are designed for parents to just kind of help yeah. them understand their rights. And mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know. So you have yeah. to know going in and no one else is going to help you. You know, the, the school isn't going to sit there and tell you, hey, you know, you should ask for an evaluation this way. You should ask for this. You should ask for that. You have to know that on your own and they expect you to know it on your own. So you need to know what you're asking for, right? Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend um, checking out online resources. There's a lot of them. The, one of the best ones is Rights Law. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, gives a lot of really good high-level information, And um, I think usually most states have like a a parent help center type thing that there's something, and a really good one is DREDF, uh, D-R-E-D-F.org. And they have a lot of sample letters that you can use a lot of information. So I think you kind of have to prepare yourself and educate yourself. The other thing that I think is really important going into an IEP or 504 meeting is to ask for drafts ahead of time, Okay. ask for the evaluation reports ahead of time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You
2: don't want to go into a meeting, not knowing what you're going to be hit with. Right. And it's really important. It, It really goes to parent participation in the IEP process. You mm. have to have time to review all of those reports. I mean, these reports are, you know, 45 pages long, right? Right, yeah. right. And, you know, if you've never seen an IEP before, yeah, you better look at one ahead of time. Mm. And, you know, as an attorney, when I get an IEP, I, you know, I go straight to the goals. Mm. And and that's a lot of, that's really where the parent participation comes in, I I think is massaging the goals and drafting the goals in a way that's gonna help your child. And if you've never seen those before, it's pretty hard to come up with your thoughts on the fly. You know, you need to be able to review all of those documents ahead of time, make notes, write down questions. Right. But I think that's one of the biggest things I tell parents, like, what should I do for my IEP meeting? You should ask questions and you should keep asking questions until you understand exactly what is being proposed.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. And the goal section is so important for families to understand just what exactly are goals? What is is the purpose of having them? How are the schools going to make sure that those are met or not? (laughs) What happens when they're not? All those things. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that section out.
2: A lot of parents are afraid to ask questions.
0: Mm. You know,
2: Mm -hmm. it's like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. They clearly must because they're in education and I I don't want to see them stupid. So I don't want to ask questions or I don't want to be that parent. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you have to ask the questions. I mean, and just starting on the first page. If you don't know what specific learning disability is,
0: mm-hmm.
2: ask them. Right, ask. You know, ask lots of questions. So, so yeah.
1: important. I, I'm so grateful for these tips that you're providing. Um, I think that they are so beneficial for parents to understand that they can get a draft ahead of time. Yeah, um, and so through the lens of someone who's a private therapist, like myself or you know, a private tutor who works with students, I will often go in as a participant to the 504 IEP meetings with my parents. Um and so having those, you know, the drafts there is really helpful. But um, you know, and I'm also there to help parents understand the terminology that's being used. So when the and to ask questions. So when when something's said, you know, in teacher language, I can help the parent understand that, or the parent and I've already met before and we can have conversations and I know what questions to ask on their behalf. So, um, but as far as, you know, thinking about through the lens of a tutor or private therapist like myself, do you have tips for preparing um, a 504 or, or, you know, certain ways to advocate um, to build that partnership with schools where you're still advocating, but not hostile? <laughs> I don't know Mm. what word I'm looking for, but like some tips
2: for managing that situation. Yeah. Sure. I will just say first that advocacy is not the same as hostility. Mm. Correct. So people need to really keep that in mind. Mm. You know, you don't want to be in a situation where you're afraid to speak up or ask tough questions or demand responses for fear of being perceived as hostile. You're advocating for your child and that's okay. Yelling, screaming, things like that. That's not good. That is hostility. But just because you're advocating for a student or for a child doesn't mean you're automatically hostile. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding your question, I think having a tutor or private therapist at the IEP meeting is so helpful. Okay. And I think it's especially helpful in developing the goals. hmm Because you have that specialized knowledge of understanding dyslexia and what does a second grade student with, you know, this profile need and help drafting those goals. I see, I think schools mean well when they propose goals, but it's just based on rubric or, Mm -hmm. you know, grading standards and it really helps to have somebody like a private therapist who really knows what the child needs, help break that down and make sure that the goals are smart goals. Yeah. Are they really measurable? And what is it specifically that we're measuring in this goal? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I see a lot of, um, they're either vague goals or we're trying to hit too many things in one goal. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. so,
2: you know, that's where you would come in and it'd be so helpful to say, well, we need to break these reading goals down. So I think that's why it can be really, really helpful. And then asking questions about the interventions. I mean, once you you're done with the goals and you move on to services, mm-hmm. you know, what does that resource pullout look like? Mm-hmm. What are you doing during that time? What's the program? How's that work? because yeah, you can have all the goals in the world, but you know, what is your remediation strategy?
0: Absolutely. And some, the, some of the common things you've spoken to two things here that stick out to me when I look at the goals, they tend to be too generic. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's one of the big issues. And then the other thing when we're, you're really digging into, okay, so what is this going to look like? Parents always have come, back, come back with me with so many questions about, well, I said, well, what program or approach do they say they're going to be mm-hmm. using? And they don't always feel like they know what's going on. Or I say, so who has training in, you know, OG or Wilson in this situation that's going to be, you know, giving this service delivery? Um, What kind of, have you asked what kind of training they had? What, what specific programs or approaches are they going to be using? That's such an important question to ask. It is
2: important. And I always tell parents to ask those questions. And when I'm in an IEP meeting, I ask those questions myself. It's very difficult to get an answer. Sometimes
0: it is Mm-hmm. And you
2: have to keep probing. Mm-hmm. So ha- having that knowledge to be able to probe deeper, to really get an answer to the question is so crucial.
1: And I think that's important for, you know, twofold. Number one, we want to make sure that the goals and the and that the program that the child is receiving and and who's delivering it is is aligned with their needs. But secondly, as you know, as someone as a private therapist, if I know what program they're using at the school and then the child comes to see me in the private setting, I can use my knowledge to bridge the gap between the two. We don't want kids in two different programs. That's, that can be confusing. So I know, you know, I've been in education now long enough, like Emily, I feel like I've been trained in everything so I can help bridge the information and the language for right. the kids so that I'm reinforcing what's being taught in school. I'm not doing something contradictory or or maybe confusing for the child, so.
2: Exactly. Right,
0: right. I think that's excellent way, you know, working towards making that bridge. So, so helpful. Mm-hmm. Great tips there. So I'm gonna ask sort of a hot button question uh-huh. next, Sabrina. <laughs>
1: I've, I've been waiting for this one. I can't wait for this one now.
0: <laughs> I know, no, we have heard Casey and I for so Mm -hmm. many years now, we've been at this for a while, parents, teachers will tell us that their school says they cannot use the word dyslexia. Can you please speak to this with clarity (laughs) from a legal perspective so we can just really help everybody listening today?
2: They can absolutely use the word dyslexia. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. They absolutely can. I don't think there's anything out there that says that they need to, but yes, they can. I would say from the legal perspective, what you really need to pay attention to are the eligibility categories and you need to just, you know, set aside, oh, we don't test for dyslexia or we can't do that or we don't use that word. Yes, you can, but let's just set that aside for now. In the IDEA, there's 13 eligibility categories, one of them being specific learning disability. That includes dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, things like that. So whether you use the word or not, practically speaking, what you're looking for is a specific learning disability eligibility category for your IEP. And it's going to be specific learning disability in reading, specific mm-hmm. learning disability in writing, mm-hmm. et cetera. And as long as you get that eligibility and then you start crafting goals you understand what the needs are, whether you use the word or not, it doesn't matter so much for purposes of the IEP, but yes, you absolutely can use the word dyslexia. Yes.
1: That has been really confusing for a lot of parents because they'll come in with their report and they're like, well, no, they, they said that they don't have dyslexia, but then I'll look and it's SLD in reading. I'm like, no, that's, that actually is what that exactly. is, but, they, but because they're not using the word dyslexia in the meetings, that can be very confusing for parents. So yeah, we it is SLD in reading, that is dyslexia. So, that
2: is dyslexia.
1: And I think that's important information for teachers as well in the education world, When I was trained, dyslexia was not, was not anything that I learned about. I had to do that on my own. So a lot of times teachers, they just don't know. And, and if they're looking at those reports, you know, they may not understand what SLD is representing either. So, and when they're told you can't say dyslexia, then it just kind of muddies the waters.
2: Yeah. I I think there's a lot of, I, I see it in various Facebook groups, honestly, Mm -hmm. where they say, well, you know, nobody can, they can't test for dyslexia. Mm. So then people think, oh, well, I need to go get my own private evaluation. And it's like, no, 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 you don't need to do that. Obviously, if you do get a private evaluation, they're going to use the word. Yes. (laughs) But I kind of feel like that's being used as a means of getting parents to go away. Mm. Oh, hey, I think my child has dyslexia. Can you please test him? oh, we don't test for dyslexia. Hmm. As in the parents go away and they think, well, my school can't help me. Well, Hmm. that's, that it's a misnomer because they may claim we don't test for dyslexia. That's a medical diagnosis. Hmm. We only look at it from the educational perspective, but what they don't follow up with is Well, we can test them for special education eligibility. And one of the eligibility categories is specific learning disability, which would encompass dyslexia. So that's what parents need to understand is don't just walk away when they tell you, we don't test for dyslexia because dyslexia is encompassed by specific learning disability. And you absolutely can get them evaluated through the school.
0: Yes. And in your tips for crafting that letter in writing, you did iterate that mm-hmm. to say, you know, testing for eligibility for specific learning disability in there. I recall you saying that before. So you just, I think parents knowing that language, because a lot of them just don't know how to word things. So thank you so much for uh, clearing that up. And we hope our listeners really feel empowered by your tips in that way. <laughs> All right.
1: Sabrina, do you have any books or resources, book recommendations, or maybe some resources for parents and teachers to learn a little bit more about you know the IEP process, the 504 process and some of these legal pieces?
2: Yeah, I I think I mentioned it earlier, rights law. Mm-hmm. Anything by Pete Wright is fantastic. And he has web resources, you know, Mm -hmm. rightslaw.com. He's written various books uh, regarding the different tests, testing, getting your child evaluated through the school, advocacy tips, things like that. And they're all, they're on Amazon. I mean, you can get them all over the place uh, and they're absolutely fantastic. Obviously overcoming dyslexia is, that's a staple which is very important. One that I really like is Dyslexia Advocate by Kelly Sandman Hurley, because it not only talks about dyslexia itself, but it really ties it to the uh, special education advocacy process Mm -hmm. and goes through the timelines and some of how, how to walk you through the process of going through, you know, evaluation and getting an IEP and things like that for a child that has dyslexia. Another one that I really like is Your Special Education Rights, What Your School District Isn't Telling You by Jennifer Laviano and Julie Swanson. And that's actually a really good book. It's not geared towards dyslexia, but it's it's targeted toward the special education process itself. And it's almost kind of like a question and answer format. Okay, It's very, very helpful because it's, it's all the things that you're not being told about the process and how to deal with them. So I, that one you can get on Amazon as well there. It's very fantastic, very easy reading. It's designed for parents, it's not very, not full of a lot of jargon or anything like that. Very easy reading. Very, very helpful.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Sabrina. You, sometimes some of our listeners may be educators, tutors, or specialists that might want to begin entering into advocacy work. I've spoken to a lot of people lately that are interested in and in mm-hmm. adding that onto their lists of services to offer families. Do you have any tips for advocacy work or, you know, anything that you can offer, any advice for people looking to get into that?
2: So I've actually had this conversation with school personnel uh, wanting to move into advocacy work. And a lot of the advocates that I know uh, locally, they used to work in schools. They're special education teachers. They've been the SPED director. They've been in those positions. And I think they bring a great perspective because, well, one, they, they know the district, they know the schools and the players, so they can see it from the school's perspective, but then, you know, it gives them a chance to maybe speak up and advocate for students that they weren't really able to do before. I hear that unfortunately a lot that, you know, because of constraints, fiscal constraints, a lot of times they're not able to advocate for what they really think the student needs in, in IEP meetings. So it's actually a, a really great transition for those people to move into advocacy. You know, they, they generally have the background, but I would say one of the best trainings out there is the COPA seat training. So, I mean, having that background, you, you're, you're already ready to go. I, I do highly recommend the seat training. Okay. There's a, a practicum that's involved with that as well. It's a great mm-hmm. way to you know work underneath somebody, get some mentorship, and um, then just go out and you know set up your practice. Or there's actually a lot of uh, nonprofits that employ advocates as well. Or you can do you know a solo practice if you want, or join a group. There, I mean, there's just such a need for it. So yes. I would highly encourage people to move into advocacy.
0: I think that's so great. Thank you so much for offering those names because I hadn't, I knew of one, but I hadn't heard of the others that you mentioned. That was great. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. And just for clarification, COPA is council of parents, attorneys, and advocates. Okay. Okay. COPA, A-N? dot okay. org. And they have a lot of great resources for parents, advocates, attorneys, Um, and other uh, related service providers. They do a conference and and their special education advocacy training is fantastic.
0: That's great. We'll be sure to add that into our show notes for the listeners. Mm -hmm. So if anybody is interested in um, taking a deep dive into advocacy work, they can uh, go there. That's wonderful. So Sabrina, as we wrap up, If people wanted to learn more about your work, any services you offer, what's the best way for them to connect with
2: you? The best way to learn more about me and my practice is through my website, which is axedlegal.com. Blog posts there, a list of free resources, some information about me and my practice. I am also on all the major social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, I think I'm on Twitter as well, uh, <laughs> though I don't always post regularly. I handle all of them, uh, so that's a great way to connect with me. Um, I'm primarily on Instagram; that's where I get my most engagement. I do try to put out helpful information, you know, little tips and tricks for IEP meetings and special education, and throw in some reels as well for fun.
0: Good for you diving into reels.
1: <laughs> yes. I follow, I follow Sabrina on Instagram and I love all of the information she puts out. So oh, awesome. we will be sure to link her website and all of her social media platform tag in the show notes as well. And along with all of the wonderful information and books and websites that Sabrina provided for us today. So we'll be sure to have those in the show notes for you. Sabrina, you've provided so
0: much information for our listeners today. I just know they're just going to come away just feeling empowered, feeling like they're ready to pick up one of these books, go to one of these websites to learn more and to of course, follow you. So we just thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us. And uh, we look forward to checking you out on social media and connecting with you more. Yeah. Well, thank you so
2: much for having me. I had a great time with you guys. Wonderful. And for our listeners,
1: remember, you can send in questions and reviews and they may be read on the podcast.
0: Yes. So we will see you next time, everybody. All right. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us
0: that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com.
1: Be sure to visit the website, www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies.
0: Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.